Welcome to Heaven and Earth. I'm joined with Dr. Ellen Hayes. And I think we're going to, we're probably going to talk about a number of things, but the main topic I think is on uh, Indigenous history. Uh, You recently gave a talk that I heard in person and uh, was really helped by. So I wanted to see if we could have a longer conversation or have any conversation really on it, if possible. So as we get going, um, Professor Hayes, would you mind uh, introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, Glad to. Uh, As Wyatt says, I'm Alan Hayes is my name, and I teach at Wycliffe College, uh, which is an Anglican theological school, which is in turn part of a consortium of theological schools of different denominations at the University of Toronto. And uh, although we're Anglican in kind of sponsorship and history, most of our students are non-Anglican and uh, pretty much all from evangelical backgrounds or evangelical commitments. So I teach history of Christianity and I've been there for a long time time, number of decades, and I'm also an Anglican priest in the Diocese of Niagara, which um, means I turn up on Sunday mornings and sometimes preach and sometimes lead worship, but my, my actual job uh, is at Wycliffe College. I'm not a, I'm not a pastor by, uh, by career. Hmm. And how long have you taught there for? Or maybe you mentioned that. Maybe well, I, um, I wasn't too precise because I thought it might, you know, embarrass me in terms of letting people know how old I am. But uh, I got there in 1975. 1975. So you have must you must have seen so many transitions and transformations on the University of Toronto campus, I have to imagine. Yeah, Even well, the city building up around it. Oh, for sure. Um Around the 1990s, or early 2000s, uh, the University of Toronto decided it really wanted to be a kind of world-class research-intensive institution. Um, and that more and more put pressure on the theological schools to um, raise their game a little bit. Um, that's one change. I mean, another change that, you know, I can't exactly prove, but it's sort of my sense is that um, the university has become much more uh, kind of accepting of Christian commitment and Christian witness. So my sense when I got there in the 70s was that it was just kind of the age of post-Christendom, you know, and there were a lot of people in the university who were just so glad to have the oppressive and repressive character of the church removed from them. And they just thought, you know, any kind of Christian theology was probably kind of, you know, fiction and didn't see what was even in the university. But now the university is a lot more, partly, I mean, it's a lot more um, diverse. I mean, and then when he began having Jewish studies and Muslim studies and um, sexual diversity studies and, um, you know, all kinds of studies where people actually have commitment to what they're, you know, not just kind of studying something at arm's length, but are really committed to what they're studying for one reason or another. I think the whole university realized, well, Christians are the kind of same thing, you know, they so the faith-seeking understanding thing actually made more sense. So I, I used to kind of feel at the university that if people knew that I taught theology, they'd begin, you know, putting me on uh, the defensive as to why I was teaching something so silly. And uh, now I get the feeling that people really are interested in knowing more about it. And uh, kind of the, the dialogue that happens, I think, is much more authentic than sincere. That's really interesting. And you would have been around, I guess, in the 70s and 80s. There were some large political stars. Uh, I think it was a McMaster, George Grant was there. And there was 
in not infighting, I guess there was conflict between the University of Toronto faculty and all that. Was that a, a big deal at the time, or is that just more of a an odd historical blip? Well, I suppose you know, I suppose the '60s was a big time of six, you yeah. know, student rebellion and so on. So I got there a bit after that. Um, so I don't. It wasn't quite so tense. It was different, but maybe not so tense. But we had our stars. I mean, Northrop Pry was teaching there, and he was teaching uh, Bible. I mean, he taught in the English department. But his view was that you couldn't understand anything in English literature if you didn't know the Bible. And he discovered that his undergraduates didn't know the Bible. So he taught a course in Bible that they were all required to take. Hmm. And when I first got there, I asked his permission to sit in the back of his class and, uh, and listen to him because he was pretty celebrated. And of course, Marshall McLuhan, you know, was also a kind of famous guy at the University of Toronto. And he was really kind of a lay Catholic theologian in disguise. Um, Interesting. So there were a, a number of, you know, kind of Christian influences going on at the University of Toronto when I was there, but they were slightly disguised as English literature or media studies. Yeah, now it's, it almost feels like nowadays it's pretty hard to be a uh, celebrity university professor, with the exception of, um, I guess, Jordan Peterson from U of T. But that's not it's different because he got into the new media and YouTube and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like Marsh McLuhan and others. Yeah. Early on, like you could almost be a a public, a public intellectual celebrity yeah. just from teaching or. So I think that's what they were. Um, I mean, in the sciences, we have, you know, celebrities in the sciences who discover amazing things. But fair enough. Yeah. Kind of harder in the humanities uh, and in theology. I don't know. I mean, I know there are people that I think of as celebrities. With right. But, but, but outside of intellectuals, yeah. they wouldn't be household names. Well, there, there was a, a theologian um, at McMaster who was pretty well, uh, uh, Stephen Pinnock, Pinnock, right? Yeah, Clark Pinnock. Clark Pinnock, Clark Pinnock yeah. And uh, at, at the, I mean, he was, I guess, sort of a celebrity, even though he was a Christian theologian in recent years. I feel like yeah. at least some people knew who he was. He was certainly well known in, in my circles. I mean, he, he, was, he was an amazing guy. He, uh, uh, not just as a thinker, you know, as a very creative thinker, but as just a really honest you know, Christian disciple, uh, a disciple who would, um, you know, just invite people who were homeless into his home uh, for indeterminate amounts of time because that's what Christians do. Um, I have to say, I don't do that, you know, <laughs> but, but he, you know, but he, he had the sense that as a disciple of Christ, he mm. just loved the stranger. Mm. That's interesting that the new world or the different kind of world that we live in now a couple was it two weeks ago whenever it was that i uh we invited yeah. you to speak at, uh, in toronto at an event um and you and uh, the archbishop mark mcdonald who probably if you're listening to this it will be a podcast prior to this that, that i actually have a conversation with him um you you gave a presentation uh, or at least a talk kind of a, a casual talk well semi-formal talk on uh, indigenous history and it was really fascinating so uh, maybe just one really basic question we could start with was like um why the term indigenous because you, you do hear a lot of different terminology uh aboriginal indigenous uh, first nations and so on so, so what is why are we using the term indigenous where does that come from and why is it appropriate so um part of it is kind of fashion um i mean the 
what has been the kind of preferred nomenclature has changed and it's not always clear why it changes. Um, my daughter actually did what was then called native studies in her undergraduate program and then they changed the name to indigenous studies you know a few years ago and then to say aboriginal has been used. Um, so uh, the constitution, the Canadian constitution, uh, which talks about aboriginal rights uses the term aboriginal. Um, so, I mean, it's not that it's out of use. So I think, I, I have a feeling that Aboriginal just kind of sounded like it was too, uh, like it had a, a connotation of, of primitive mm. and, um, you know, kind of there from the very beginning and not as advanced and civilized as other people. So I think maybe that was a reason for not being sure about that one. And uh, native, maybe, you know, I mean, a, a native Canadian can be a white person who's born in Canada, you know, so then maybe that's just a little bit ambiguous. So I think indigenous was a way of, mm. but there's no telling that indigenous is going to remain <laughs> the, the accepted nomenclature that might change as well. Well, Canada has had a, a long, well, I would maybe put this way, Europeans who eventually became Canadian have a, have a long history of, of contact with indigenous persons reading a book right now um i honestly can't remember the author or the title it's like called like fighting for canada or something but i remember the content which is interesting um and it kind of begins with uh, you know jacques cartier coming over and whatever it is the early 1500s this is like basically 500 years ago yeah. and there being a, a somewhat a civil uh, relationship and they live among one another but then even jacques cartier uh, basically kidnaps a number of people and brings them to Europe and they never return to, to Canada. So it does seem like there is like this kind of positive relationship with these, these early French explorers, traders, but that it's, it does turn sour pretty fast. So how, you kind of had this categorization of like uh, different histories of Aboriginal relations with, um, I guess people of European descent, like, can you tell me about this first this first 16th century kind of category of relationship? What was that like? So, um, you know, I'm a historian and historians are all revisionistic and, you know, people change their minds about the history and so on. Um, I think there's a general sense that the New France era was one of a lot of, um, you know, cooperation and coordination between Indigenous and settler people because... Well, for one thing, the indigenous folks far outnumbered the French. Um, and now there was, you know, smallpox and European disease that really reduced the numbers of indigenous people. But even so, there were never a huge number of French folk in New France. That was one reason. But also, you know, the French settlers depended on indigenous people for military alliances against other indigenous people, uh, for instance, and for trade and for, you know, environmental knowledge. Um, so uh, it was not, so whereas, you know, people say, whereas in New Spain and in New England, there was a lot of dispossession of indigenous land. Um, in New France, indigenous and settler people could live together. Um, the, the French system of holding land was a kind of a, a feudal system where you had a seigneur and you didn't have to dispossess indigenous people of their land. You could all live together on the land, uh, which is um, which made it kind of easy to cooperate. And there was a kind of a sense of indigenous rights. So that's that'd be stage number one. 
Um, now, just how do you, in terms of year span, is this like what kind of? Yeah, so not much happened after Cartier came in the 1500s yeah. uh, for a while. I mean, the fisher people would kind of show up in France and, you know, and uh, go into um, St. Lawrence and talk to indigenous people and trade and so forth, but there wasn't much settlement until. Or were they in Quebec City, kind of that area at the beginning, I guess? Pardon me? They were in kind of, I guess, what became Quebec City at this earlier. Yeah, yeah or, or further uh, further toward the mouth of the St. Lawrence. Um, but when Champlain came uh, in the 1600s, then mm. we begin to have settlement. And, uh, you know, there's a bit of a history about that. But that continues until, you know, the Seven Years' War, 1757 to 63, then the English come take over. And then I think you've got a, kind of a second stage, which is a stage that, we've kind of come to call the sage of settler colonialism. Hmm. So the general, uh, you know, kind of summary of the thinking about colonialism is that there's a, a kind of a, there's two kinds of, two main kinds of colonialism. There's a kind of what's sometimes called metropolitan colonialism or franchise colonialism, and that's um, like colonizing countries in Africa. And in that case, the British go in or the Dutch go in or the Germans go in or whoever, and they are, uh, setting up camp and they're looking for resources and they're making use of African labor, uh, but they're there for a while and then they go home. So that's one kind of colonialism. I mean, other people come, but I mean, it's not that people settle there permanently hmm. uh, from England or, or Germany, uh, but settler colonialism means that people really are coming to stay. And the main examples really are Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. And so they don't they're not interested in, in indigenous labor they're really interested in indigenous land so their main interest is in getting indigenous people off the land so pretty quickly now england starts out uh pretty considerately with the royal proclamation of 1763 which says you know all that land beyond the appalachians all that land beyond where settlers already are all that's all that's indian land people can stay there. Um, we, meaning the crown, the English, uh, if we want some of that land, we can make a treaty with them, uh, but we don't want developers going in, we don't want squatters going in, we don't want private individuals going in and buying land from, from Indians, we want, we want just the government to do that. So for the next, um, I don't know, many years, <laughs> uh, uh, at least a century, century and a half, Mm. Um, land tends to be acquired by treaty. Um, now, the, there's issues around the treaty, as to whether indigenous people always knew what the treaty even meant, or whether sometimes there was some fraud involved, but uh, generally it was done by treaty. But the whole idea was to dispossess indigenous people of the land and get them out of the way and find reserves for them out of the way. Mm. Uh, so that's a settler colonial period. And um, a lot of that you know, we now think was kind of unfair. And there are a lot of law cases constantly going through the court system in which indigenous people say, you know, uh, that treaty wasn't recognized or that treaty was fraudulent. And then you know, decisions have to be made about that. Um, that's the second stage. And the third stage, I guess, is the stage we're in now. So at the peak, there's a fellow named Alan Greer who teaches history at McGill University, who mm. uh, is uh, an expert in Canadian studies and and he has given a good rationale for this 
sense of three stages of settler colonial relations, uh, you know, colonial relations, settler indigenous relations. Um, so the, the kind of New France kind, uh, the settler colonial kind, which ends, he thinks he peaks anyway. I mean, it's never ended really, but it's kind of peaked around the 1950s and 1960s. And now we're in kind of a, a resource kind of colonialism um, where, you know, corpor corporations representing energy companies or um, mining companies want to go in and use indigenous land and they make arrangements. And the Canadian government now has, you know, rules about how you can do that. The courts have imposed a lot of rules and the Canadian government has imposed some rules. So you no longer have a thing where an oil company can just go in and start putting up derricks or digging or something like that. They've got to, um, they've got to um, get the agreement of indigenous people. But sometimes it's done through pressure and sometimes it's done through uh, dividing indigenous opinion and sometimes it's done in a way which is still a little bit questionable, you know, and we've probably all read some news stories about um, protests against the way police are trying to enforce uh, the will of energy companies or oil companies. So that's that's the third stage that we're in now. It's interesting that you, you think of the history like in, so 1763, you have um, this sort of treaty created, but, but during this time too, you have a very like interesting relationship between the, the colonies and the, and the South and, and Canada, French Canada, whatever you want to call it. Um, that I think I assume plays into this history because um, at this time, I think the Canadians kind of own the Ohio Valley region and there is still, it, I guess, a more organic relationship with the indigenous persons. But I, that must switch after the American Revolution, I imagine, yeah. right? Because they can push yeah. what the Americans or the colonies, whatever it becomes, you know, the U.S., pushes west after it becomes a nation and kind of encroaches on uh, indigenous land. Whereas in the yeah. north in Canada, isn't that still more respected, I would say? So, I mean, certainly before the American Revolution, it was all kind of British. So it didn't much, you know, I mean, it mm -hmm. didn't matter, but it didn't matter as much as it did after the revolution where you do the international boundary. Um, and then the War of 1812 also settled a few of those issues. But after 1812, yeah, the boundaries that we have now, at least in Eastern Canada, are pretty well settled. Um, so, I mean, there certainly is a, all kind, there are all kinds of connections between indigenous settler history in Canada and indigenous settler history in the United States. I mean, a lot of the law is kind of similar. Legal decisions are often based on similar kinds of precedents. Um, one difference is the United States history is a little bit brutal, you know, a little bit violent. There were um, just, there were a number of situations where people would, you know, army would just go in and kill um, First Nations people. Um, and then there was, you know, President Jackson had this decision that he was gonna get all First Nations people off the East Coast and he would just march them into Oklahoma territory or somewhere else and get them out of the way. Um, neither white folk or nor Indian folk in Canada wanted that to happen. Um, I think when they saw what was happening in the United States, that's, I think that reinforced the idea that agreement 
and treaty was really the way to go. So we don't have, you know, I mean, there were military actions and there were police actions and there was violence and so forth, but nothing like on the scale that you find in the United States. So that I think the United States was kind of a, a warning to, you know, both indigenous and settler people in Canada that if they didn't find ways to cooperate and agree, things could be bad for everybody. Now, there are um, some, I suppose, exceptions. I remember you, you spoke of a fellow who went to what is now British Columbia and basically denied that the, uh, the, uh, the treaty was valid in that province. Yeah. And so kind of, I, I guess, illegally claimed yeah. the land. Is, is, how did that work exactly? So, yeah, British Columbia has its own kind of history. And um, so they were uh, settled partly from the south, from the United States, and partly from the north by the Hudson Bay Company coming in from the north and um, other ways. Um, what happened is, so there's a, you know, the discovery of gold in the 1850s, a big gold rush, big settler mm. population coming in and the government needing to find places for them to live. And the provincial government at the time in the 18, late 1860s just kind of said, treaties don't apply to us. We know about the Royal Proclamation of 1763, but nobody in 1763 knew that British Columbia existed. They couldn't possibly have had in mind British Columbia. So we will just do things our way. And as far as we are concerned, there are no Aboriginal land rights, whatever, in British Columbia. So we will send in our surveyors and we will find land for the settlers and we will tell the indigenous people where they can live and move them out of the way. And if they object, we'll send in the gunboats or send in the military and we'll move them out of the way by force. So the Canadian government was not happy with what British Columbia was doing and said so, but, um, they didn't feel they could, you know, they weren't going to declare war on British Columbia, I guess. So they let that happen. So that uh, pretty much all land in British Columbia, we now call unceded in the sense that there was never a treaty in which indigenous people said, oh, yes, you can have this land and we'll go somewhere else and you'll so pay us for the land. Just, or just to clarify one piece. Um, sorry, I don't I don't mean to necessarily yeah, yeah. Cut you off. I am cutting you off. <laughs> so unceded in this context is saying that indigenous people did not cede this land to the yeah. provincial government. Is that the, con okay. That's right. They didn't cede it uh, by, by treaty, basically. They just had it taken away from them. So that means that now, um, so in 1970, I forgot, I think 73, there was a decision of the Supreme Court of Canada called the Calder decision, which said, you know what, the Royal Proclamation does apply to British Columbia. And after that happened, the then, uh, Minister of Indian Affairs, Jean Chrétien, said, okay, uh, what we want to do as Canada is to reach treaty with all those groups in British Columbia. Now that has not quite happened yet, uh, but that is the direction that, and it has happened with some uh, First Nations in British Columbia, such as with the Niska, who have a, a self-governing um, treaty with Canada. But the, and that's growing, but it had, still has to be done. So there are still a lot of land claims and land uncertainties in British Columbia. Mm. Now, in the early 20th century, uh, you recounted a story where some indigenous people were trying to push their claim on the basis of the 1767 uh, yeah. Royal Proclamation. 
But when they got to Senate, uh, the Senate basically shut them down and, and made it for at least a short, a relatively short time, illegal to push their legal rights to the land. So what, what happened yeah. there? So yeah, that was the Niska Nation. So the Niska are a group of the Pacific Northwest, uh, pretty far north, if you think of where uh, Haida Gwaii is, which used to be called the Queen Charlotte Islands. Is that, those are islands, if you look east, you're probably gonna look at where the Niska are. And um, so, and they, uh, and, and you're right. So their claim was that the 1763 Royal Proclamation that I've been talking about uh, should apply to them and the provincial government said, no, it doesn't. And they got a lawyer who was a settler lawyer. He was actually an Anglican priest and a lawyer oh, really? uh, to work for them. And he tried as much as he could. So he had conversations with the British Columbia government and with the Canadian government. And he went to England and had conversations with the English government. And he had uh, different overtures to the House of Commons and to the cabinet and to the Senate and so on. And finally failed. In fact, he not only failed, but he got Ottawa so annoyed <laughs> that they uh, changed the Indian Act to prohibit uh, giving funds to indigenous people for land claims. So that was repealed in the 1960s, but for 40 years, uh, First Nations people weren't even allowed to go to court around land claims. It was simply against the law for them to try to get the law on their side. Um, but then this, um, when that law was repealed, then they did go back to court, then this did go to okay. court, and then the result was this Calder decision. So I, I was just kind of looking up. I, so I, uh, I was born in Fort Nelson, but I also lived in Prince George, which uh -huh. is, I mean, it's not close, close, but it is basically yeah. east of Niska Nation's uh, territory there. It's yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is a bit of the history here. Uh, so there's an uneasy uh, tension, it seems like, in Canada that... Um, Maybe better than some of the violence that we saw south of the uh, of the border, but but not really good. Um, some obviously some of the negative stories have come to light recently with unmarked graves and residential school systems, and even to some degree, and maybe you can crack me on this, that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were not. Uh, always so innocent in this story as well. It seems to me that the basic history is that the mountains, in fact, early on at least were, had a relatively positive relationship with indigenous people, but it, it soured, especially with some of the school systems and some of the things that happened there. So can, can you give us like the big picture of Mountie relationship with indigenous people? And then also some of the, why these recent, and I know they're not really discoveries, people know about them forever, but they're discoveries in terms of they're in the news and people are beginning to be aware of them anyway. So what's going on here? How did this happen? Like that, that um, residential schools are pulling children away from their families and being supported even by the, uh, the police. Yeah. So, well, I'm not sure. It's probably hard to generalize about the police. You know, I mean, I, when I was a kid, you know, we had Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, right? And, uh, you know, a lot of the television programs were about Sergeant Preston kind of taking the side of First Nations people against uh, nasty gold miners. So um, I think I think the RCMP liked that kind of reputation, you know, of uh, trying to be fair. 
um, you know, I, I, I guess it was a, as with any profession, I mean, there are different people in police departments who have different kinds of views and different ways of acting in certain kinds of situations. Um, I mean, I've met RCMP who uh, really want to kind of get to know Indigenous people in their community and will show up at the church lunch on a Wednesday and talk to people and, you know, make sure they know everybody and treat everybody fairly. And But then you see other situations where they just get um, impatient with indigenous uppityness, I guess, and do something else. But as far as the residential school system was concerned, I mean, uh, that was a situation where the police were sometimes called in to enforce certain laws, which is what police, of course, do. And sometimes uh, that could happen um, a little brutally. Now, I mean, the kind of situation that came up was at a certain point, um, all indigenous kids had to go to schools um, authorized by the Indian Affairs Department. And those could be day schools, but a lot of them were residential schools. And if there was no day school around, it had to be a residential school. And not all parents wanted to give up their kids for you know indefinite amounts of time and sometimes turn into years. So then the police would be sent in to make sure that it happened. And uh, so, I mean, there are certainly stories of the police just going in and grabbing kids away from the hands of their mothers and putting them in the boat or the airplane or whatever and taking them away. So that isn't brutality in the sense of beating people over the head with a billy club, but I mean, it's certainly uh, um, brutal in another kind of way, uh, brutal to kind of family sensibilities, but that was, you know, kind of their job. I mean, it's not that they, the police said, oh, let's do that. They were sent in by the, you know, the Indian agent or by the Indian commissioner or by the Indian Affairs Department, and that was their job. Hmm. Well, one of the things that I, um, you, we're talking about the era that we're in now, which is the uh, resource colonialism, if you want to call it that. And it's interesting, when, when I grew up, it was interesting that the sort of narrative that at least was familiar to me was that you have Canadian companies and, and uh, that are moving in and trying to um, to build something, to build a business. And it, we have this huge, massive landmass. And then you had Indigenous persons who were resistant because, you know, they, they like nature and, and all that. And that's kind of just how the story was. So it's just kind of very simple and, and black and white. But it strikes me that as a, at least as a conservative or as a Tory, someone maybe who isn't as invested in the sort of Republican uh, so-called blue Tory perspective mm -hmm. should very much value the um, 1763 Royal Proclamation, given that, I mean, I think a conservative at heart wants to conserve what is good and right and just, and yet... I mean, I don't really see this treaty. I know that we have these things where you, you, you have an event and you, you'll read like a little a few sentences about the land that you're on, but that doesn't really seem to be part of our public discourse. Or uh, in the recent election that we had in Can federal election in Canada, I don't remember um, um, Aaron O'Toole talking about anything along those lines. It's, just, it's almost like it's a non-issue, but I don't know how it could be if you're a Tory or a conservative. So 
this, I know this is a bigger question than you've done because it's not really a historical question, but it's just more like your impression. Why is among conservatives anyways, which I guess I would say I am a Tory, why do we apparently not talk about this issue <laughs> politically, that is? So the last election was a bit of a surprise because, I mean, the liberals didn't talk so much about it either. And uh, um, it just didn't seem to be an election issue. And given in the previous all the news like the, the graves and with the reconciliation commission and then the graves over the summer i mean that was a bit of a surprise um so i don't know why it went off the map um yeah a lot of people i was a bit disappointed about that and i think a lot of people were disappointed that it just you know did not seem to rise to the campaign issue um so yeah I, the um on the resource extraction thing um I'll return to my historical hat, I guess, but there was a kind of a turning point in the 1970s. It's a turning point, I think, not just for Indigenous, non-Indigenous relations, but also a turning point for the role of the churches in all these issues, um, which was when a consortium of companies wanted to build a pipeline from the Beaufort Sea um, down to the United States. So what had happened was a huge amount of natural gas had been found in the Beaufort Sea, which is kind of a sea of the Arctic Ocean. Mm -hmm. And with oil, well, you could kind of pump it to the coast and they'd already done that and then put it on ships, but natural gas, you typically have to freeze and it would be a lot more difficult to do. So they wanted a pipeline directly down into the United States. Um, now the federal government had already decided that there should be some consultation about things like that. So they got a fellow named Thomas Berger, who was a Supreme Court justice to do hearings. And, and this was a really unusual thing because he went up and did hearings in the Northwest Territory. So this pipeline was gonna go across Dene territory and it was gonna have impact on their livelihood, on wildlife, on the economy, um, on all kinds of things. So Berger had hearings in different communities. He had translators so that Dene people could speak and it, it got a huge amount of coverage. So the CBC sent reporters who covered it and it became news every day on television to say what had happened that day in the Berger Inquiry. And the churches got hugely involved. I'm talking about the mainline churches, kind of Roman Catholic and Anglican and United, and I guess maybe Presbyterian. Um, so they sent something called Project North up there. Um, and their role wasn't always terribly constructive because they took sides and sometimes on behalf of the indigenous folk, sometimes demonized the corporations in a way which probably wasn't really very helpful. But after years and years in which the churches were running residential schools and, and uh, just making decisions about First Nations people without talking to them, this was a change. Um, and Fanny Berger came out with the decision that they should wait at least 10 years before building the pipeline. And in the meantime, just clean up the situation, you know, make sure that they knew what this was gonna to do to indigenous economies and environment. Um, finally, in around 2011, I guess, the federal government did give a license, but by 2016, it was decided that this was no longer an economic proposal and the companies backed out because they didn't think they could make money doing it. Hmm. So it turned out it never happened. But um, but just that, that became kind of a template of 
how the government wanted these decisions about extracting resources on indigenous land to go about. They wanted uh, to be fair to all parties. Uh, makes things a long process, and it you know makes a lot of people impatient. But and it doesn't always work well. But I think in principle it's turned out to be a good thing. So I think you know for a Tory who wants to you know respect the rule of law, um, I think that's a good procedure to to do. Well, I want to just uh, ask you. I think uh, two last things. So one, the last one, I'll be uh, ask you about some books that we could read. But the, the last kind of more normal question I want to say is: talk about being a, a conservative or a Tory. What's interesting is from a Christian point of view. Um, According to Archbishop Mark McDonald, a high percentage of Indigenous people identify as a, as a Christian. And it, it's maybe the same type of question, but it is interesting that, uh, at least for myself as a Christian, I don't have an, an obvious impulse to say that I want to support Indigenous Christians um, in terms of these treaties or in terms of exploitation, like I, I don't feel like there's like this vital connection. And yet there, there probably should be given, I mean, just on, at a human level for sure, but even at a level of, of Christian identification. So like, well, I don't know if this is so much of a question, it's more of a statement. It just, it, it is an interesting dichotomy between you have a number of uh, people of European descent who are claimed to be Christians. And yet we don't tend to feel any kind of obvious solidarity with indigenous Christians. So not a question, but like, just how would you reflect on that reality? Why yeah. maybe just reflect on it for me? It's odd. So, yeah. So this is, you know, top of, off the top of my head, but I think um, indigenous Christians have to be quite, I mean, it's hard for me to kind of <laughs> speak for indigenous people. No, for sure. Yeah. But my sense is that indigenous Christians are a little on the defensive, right? Because, um, they are connected with churches that have um, had had a pretty negative history for a number of decades, maybe centuries with indigenous people. So in any given um, community, indigenous community, the Christians often feel as if they are being criticized by non-Christian indigenous people simply for being Christian, for being kind of allies, I guess, or something, uh, being connected with settler-dominated settler dominated churches. So I don't think, so I think, I mean, Mark's right. So, I mean, if you look at census data, when people go out and ask indigenous people, what's your religious affiliation? Uh, a tiny percent say traditional, you know, longhouse or whatever it is, and something like 60 or 70%, you know, would say Christian. Now, I mean, that question hasn't been asked in that way on the census recently, but in the last um, in 2011, when it was asked, um, something like, I don't know, 60 or 70% of indigenous people identified as Christian, but you wouldn't know it, you know. Um, now, of course, that's like all of us, a lot of people who tell the census right, right, right. Christian don't ever go to church. But um, we still, if you look internationally, we, we see someone who claims to be a Christian, they're suffering unjustly. We feel like there's there's a pull, you know, yeah. to that towards that person. But I don't know in our churches that we feel like we have a we have a poll. I mean, I mean, I'm sure some do. Normally, there's not a poll towards identifying with those indigenous communities who maybe are suffering or have some sort of injustice happen. It just yeah. doesn't. But it's odd that we have this similar feeling to all people, people across the world who claim to be Christian, if you're perhaps in China, an underground church or something yeah. like that, and we hear about. But 
it just doesn't seem obvious to me, even though I grew up in Canada, I grew up in British Columbia where there's indigenous yeah. people and yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just an odd reality. I, I don't have any insight into it. It's just odd. Yeah. Well, maybe a communication thing. I don't know. Um, you know, what the, what stories we read or what the media talk about okay. or, you know, what celebrities we hear about. I mean, China, um, is a place we are reading about every day. And so we, I think maybe pay attention when we hear about the role of, you know, the situation with Christians in China. That may be one as another thing is maybe we don't want to get maybe as non-indigenous people, we don't want to sort of get involved in matters that are going on in indigenous communities. Um, they're already torn apart enough and maybe they don't need us going in mm -hmm. taking sides and maybe that. Um, um yeah it's I, I, there could be a number of reasons i mean another thing is that um the number of churches involved in indigenous territory is fairly small i mean it's sort of the mainline churches that ran residential schools and then the pentecostals who are making you know since the 1950s have grown tremendously in indigenous territory uh, and it may be that pentecostals feel differently i don't know uh, but a lot of other denominations just don't have so many connections, I don't think. Uh, hmm. Could be in, in among indigenous Christians. So that may be another thing. Just when I was growing up, you know, I mean, we had missionaries in church all the time. You know, they would show up on a Sunday with their magic lantern things or their slides or something, and they'd tell stories of what they were doing, and we'd get all excited and give money to missions. And at some point, most churches gotta stop hearing from missionaries. And I, so I think we just don't maybe know what's going on in the mission field. Um, I mean, I, I know some Anglican churches that read really, the parishes themselves support missions. I, it's not that the Anglican Church of Canada is paying them, it's that the individual parish just has a burden for hmm. uh, evangelizing the world and they will pay missionaries out of their own parish budget and then they hear from the missionaries. But I think for a lot of Christians in Canada today, we're, we don't, we're not hearing, you know, what's happening in different parts of the world, including the north of our own country in terms of missions. So that may be another thing. Hmm. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you, maybe it's more straightforward. Well, it is more straightforward is uh, what, what are good books to read? I know you mentioned Ellen Greer. Does he have a book or publication that we could look at? Yeah. So that was um, what I was citing then was a, a presidential address he gave to the Canadian uh, historical association so that's not a book and it's i don't think it's probably online unless you have you know an academic library behind you um so i mean there's a huge number of books coming out i mean what i try to find what i try to think of is books that are going to talk about christianity and indigenous peoples and that kind of hasn't been mm. written yet um there was a book i don't know if it's still in print it's a really old book. It's from the 1980s. Uh, it's by John Webster Grant, and it's called Moon of Wintertime. And it's a history of indigenous uh, kind of missions and indigenous Christianity. Now, a lot has happened since the 1980s, obviously, and a lot of new understanding has happened since the 1980s. So it really is out of date. But on the other hand, there's no book more recent that covers the same ground in such a uh, uh, you know, fair kind of way. Um, I know a book that Mark McDonald sometimes recommends is a book by Susan Nalen. That's N-E-Y-L-A-N. 
um, and it is called The Heavens Are Changing. And that's not an overview. So the John Grant book is an overview of Canada. Uh, Susan Nayland's book is just about um, the Tsimshian people uh, who are kind of neighbors of the Niska way up there in the Pacific Northwest coast of British Columbia. And, but it talks about how, so I think, you know, the criticism that a lot of non-Christians make uh, both non-Christian indigenous and non-Christian non-indigenous make of the churches is they have this kind of sense that missionaries went in and kind of forced people to become Christian in indigenous territory. And, you know, I mean, life doesn't work that way. You can't really force people to become Christian. I mean, I, I mean, I guess, you know, I mean, you can tell them if they don't go to church, you do something bad to them or something, but in terms of actually making them commit to Christianity in the way that a century later, most indigenous people call themselves Christian. I mean, you've got to have some kind of buy-in, you know? So this is the book about that kind of buy-in, about how um, indigenous mm -hmm. Christians, and then the missionaries um, also made it look as if they were the ones who were responsible for converting indigenous people, whereas very often, and they wanted to do that because they wanted to look good, I guess, to their mission societies, but very often the people doing the conversion were indigenous catechists and indigenous teachers and indigenous pastors. And um, so, so she kind of brings that up, you know, that the process by which a lot of indigenous people became Christian wasn't uh, agents of imperialism swooping in and forcing people to become Christian. It was actually a kind of a dialogical kind of thing where indigenous, where, you know, missionaries would kind of present something and indigenous people would say, well, that makes sense, or it could make sense, or convince me. And very often, the way missionaries work is by looking for uh, kind of analogous beliefs that already exist in the culture. You know, so when Saint Paul goes to Athens, you know, the first thing he does is he kind of by you know kind of hooks into uh, what all of these philosophers, the Areopagus, already believe. So a lot of missionaries would do that too. So and then indigenous people would say, well, you know, the way you talk about uh, Jesus and Jesus' love and Jesus' healing and Jesus' spiritual power, well, you know, it reminds me of, oh, we have some spiritual powers and, you know, maybe this Jesus is actually a better spiritual power. You know, maybe this is somebody that we can, we can commit to. And baptisms began to happen and uh, commitments began to happen. So anyway, that's what the Susan Nayland book is about. Um, is there a book on just on the general history of indigenous people in Canada, like some sort of one or two volume history book? Yeah, I don't know if I know what's up to date. I kind of buy books and then I don't always buy new books. Um, <laughs> the, uh, a, a book that my daughter used when she was doing indigenous studies was called, oh gosh, what was it called? It was something like, oh, you know what? I, I need to kind of look up the IQ. Like I don't always remember authors and titles. <laughs> it's funny. Um, I think it's called Indigenous Ways of Knowing, and it's mm. kind of introduction to um, Indigenous cultures. Um, then, I mean, there's also books. There are a number of books that will give a kind of an overview of of history. It's 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 a terribly complicated thing because there's 630 First Nations, um, you know, sort of bands across Canada. There's 15 or 20, depending how you count them, kind of overall nations like the Cree and the Anishinaabe and the Oji Cree and the Niska and so forth. There's 
something like 60 indigenous languages. So it's really hard to give an overview of indigenous history. You can give kind of an overview of indigenous settler relations, um, but that's a little bit different. So what I might do is I might look something up and tell you, and then when you do the podcast, you can just put it, it. put it as a link or something. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, uh, Alan, thank you so much for chatting. That was oh, fun welcome. and good to kind of rehash things and ask you some more questions on the basis of that really good talk I heard, which unfortunately was not recorded or anything. So <laughs> it'll be locked in my memory, but not everyone else's. But thank you for being willing to spend some time chatting with me. Well, you're really welcome. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.